The Athletic. I'm sorry, you can sit there and look and play with all your silly machines as much as you like. Is Gascoigne going to have a crack? He is, you know. Oh, I say! Brilliant! And tame, and tame again. Crank up the music! Charge a glass! This nation is going to dance all night! A brief history of joyous pitch invasions, the various emotional states of the average ball boy, the immortal, universal concept of the gaffer, half-arsed mascots and the disnification of modern football. When was the golden era of the football phone-in? And the most passionate case ever made against the ongoing, worldwide post-trophy lift reliance on Queen's We Are The Champions. Brought to your ears by The Athletic, this is Football Clichés. Hello everyone and welcome to episode 181 of Football Clichés. I'm Adam Hurry and alongside me for this one is Charlie Eccleshare. How's it going? Good, how are you? Yeah, not too bad. Nice birthday bunting behind you that the listeners can't see, but uh, adds a nice sense of occasion. Yeah, I hope it's not too off-putting. No, it's absolutely fine. High quality bunting it is too. And speaking of high quality, our guest for Meza Harland Dicks this time is football writer, broadcaster, sociologist author of the essential book The Ball is Round, A Global History of Football, among others. The second best football historian behind Premier League years narrator Georgie Thompson, it's David Goldblatt. How are you doing? I'm great, man. Really, really great to be with you. I'm feeling good. Having, of course, written sprawling thousand-page histories of global football, was it something of a difficult task to pick six tiny things to focus on for this podcast? I mean, yes, because there are just simply so many I could have picked. But it was a great pleasure. It's lovely to sit through one's obsessions and uh, and work out a little bit of ranking as well is always a great pleasure. Charlie, in the process of trying to nail down the elements for today's episode, um, David uttered the immortal line, I feel strongly about almost everything in football. So <laughs> something in store today, I fear. <laughs> well, that's absolutely ideal. You've come to the right place then. Well, interestingly that Charlie says that, David, because your intellect could be construed as somewhat daunting for someone like me. And um, But then again, maybe our approaches to football aren't a million miles apart. After all, I recently went through every single England game ever to work out their win percentage across every single UK TV channel. And you, for your most recent book, The Age of Football, went through the Twitter accounts of all the sub-Saharan political leaders to find out how many of them professed to supporting a Premier League club. <laughs> so we are, we are kindred spirits after all. Yeah, no, it's a very similar intellectual process going on there. Good, good. Glad to hear it. And just to, just to cement your suitability for this podcast, from the very, very start of The Ball Is Round. There's a section called About the Author, and it reads, David Goldblatt was born in London in 1965 and inherited, for his sins, Tottenham Hotspur (laughs) from his father. (laughs) That is a come-and-get-me plea to this podcast. (laughs) About 15 years early. I absolutely love the episode you did on on For My Sins, where I think you you were playing a recording and one had to guess when the For My Sins was going to come in. Yeah, 
expertly deployed there. Uh, not by you, of course, by third party, but still fantastic. Uh, you support Spurs and Bristol Rovers. Just how much can one person love Gary Mabbott? <laughs> yeah, I love him a lot. I love him a lot. I, uh, you know, and, you know, from both sides, as it were. Rightly so. Lovely guy. Lovely guy. But you're here for Mesut Harland Dicks. Having finally nailed down your six choices for this, I think we've got a, a nice cross-section of your footballing awareness. Uh, please kick off with your first one. So my first choice is pitch invasions. Mm. I absolutely love pitch invasions. <laughs> I think the first time I really realised what an extraordinary thing they are was that I was at Bristol City, in fact, when I first arrived in uh, Bristol. And they were in the playoffs um, for uh, for the Premier League. And uh, they came back from 2-0 down in the second leg of the game. I think it was Huddersfield. Uh, and it was uh, then it was 2-2, and that was enough. And um, at the end, just it absolutely exploded. I'd never felt anything quite like it. And I realised, you know, often at football, one, you know, when one is in a state of hysteria, and you hit those kind of peaks, actually, it's not enough to jump up and down. What you want to do is you want to run. You want to run around like a small child in a circle, waving your hands in the air, screaming. And you you can't do that in an all-seater stadium. So it was a sort of sense of just the kind of phenomenal gut-level explosion of adrenaline that football can generate and how the pitch invasion is the kind of the perfect thing. And then when I was researching the ball is round, you know, I spent a lot of time doing all the great historical pitch invasions, both the kind of awful, ugly ones, but also the celebratory ones. And um, I watched for the first time the final of the 67 uh, European Cup between Inter and Celtic. And that, for my money, is one of the most joyous, extraordinary pitch invasions that I have ever seen. And it is that sense of people, they don't know where they're going, they don't know what they're doing, they don't know why they're on the pitch, but they've got to be there. And I have also a real affection for the uh, 1986 World Cup final, which is the last time at a World Cup I think we will ever see uh, a pitch invasion. And there's like about 4,000 people on the pitch, including... An extraordinary man with a white baseball cap and a Mexican flag attached to it. Hundreds and <laughs> hundreds of Argentinians who have descended from the kind of second level to the ground on long uh, blue and white ribbons. And it's this sort of swirling, incredible mass of humanity. What a moment. You know, the World Cup's meant to be, you know, it's everyone's. It's not just FIFA's. And that was like the last moment where you could tangibly physically see it but most recently the best pitch invasion was at Bristol Rovers at the end of this season not the great 7-0 promotion yeah. pitch invasion which of course was extraordinary but I wasn't there I couldn't get a ticket but a couple of weeks beforehand we were playing Forest Green Rovers and Forest Green Rovers it was a very dull draw um, but that was enough for Forest Green Rovers to clinch automatic promotion so you had about five or 600 FGR folk piling onto the pitch, very kind of family-orientated, people with their kids, the partners of players. It was all kind of quite sweet. But clearly the Bristol Rovers contingent were not happy with this level of celebration on their home ground. 
There's so many um, vegans on the pitch at one time. That can't be <laughs> tolerable, surely. No, I think the meat eaters and the pie lovers and the pasty eaters <laughs> were were struggling. So um, one by one, and then with the kind of gathering pace of a crowd, about four or 500 Bristol Rovers fans came onto the pitch, led by, as it was the 23rd of April, a group of elderly and rather portly gentlemen in right. costume chainmail and St George outfits. <laughs> who were clearly the worst for wear. Um, and the, rea- the stu- you know, Rovers had not got enough stewards in that day, that's for sure. So there was this extraordinary panic you could see amongst the students, like, who do we try and get off? Do we stand in between? And also on the Rovers fans, look, the look on the faces like, oh, we're on the pitch. Like, what are we going to, we're not really going to have a fight. What are we, what are we going <laughs> to do? What are we going to do? I don't anyway, think every, plan it in advance. This is the thing. Everybody's honour was saved by the expedience, uh, the expediency of putting on sprinklers. <laughs> once, the, <laughs> once the sprinklers went on, the Rovers fans all felt sort of better of it and got back in the stands and Forest Green were left to celebrate their promotion. And it was just, you know, football's a lot of different kinds of drama, you know, thriller, epic, comedy, and that was pantomime, and it was mm. absolutely just just the best. So for that kind of range of exuberance, for me, yeah, the peaceful pitch invasion is a beautiful thing. Perfect couple of case studies at the start there. Charlie, I want to dig into the 1967 uh, example first. Um, chosen by David for its, its multi-angle approach, which... Uh, when you get a lot of people running in different directions, and this 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 mm. applies to players as well. You think of a, a team who've just won a penalty shootout, and they're all sat in the centre circle, and they all sort of run off in, in different ways. Um, that, to me, is the hallmark of pure footballing joy, not knowing where to run. The, the chaos element. Mm. The sort of, yeah. No, it's true. I mean, no, nothing screams that sort of exuberance and excitement than you, you've just lost your head, basically. I mean, it's amazing the the evolution that you're describing as well, and the fact that then they came. They feel like they're really in at the moment, and I know you know there were some unsavoury scenes, as we should put it, but there were also some great pitch invasions last season. Also, the, uh, the sorry, blah, blah blah the the second example that you gave, David, um, which until you said it hadn't dawned on me that this was the last ever World Cup pitch invasion, and it lit a fuse in my brain here because I thought. It's such a telegenic pitch invasion, that 1986 final one. Without it, it wouldn't be anywhere near the same. These people are all needed for the kind of mise-en-scene of Diego Maradona's triumphant moment. You need that sea of people behind him for depth, don't you really? So it, they serve en masse a huge function. It's just a fantastic chorus. What a way to go out. Everybody piles onto the pitch. It's such a kind of, such a celebration. And there is a moment in it where Maradona has been lifted onto um, someone's shoulders. And Argentinian television, which is a much better, that's the coverage if you can find it on YouTube uh, to watch, because they keep cutting back to the centre of Buenos Aires, which is completely awash in the same kind of way. And it's like Buenos Aires, Mexico City, it's all one thing. And with Maradona on the shoulders, you know, there's not a security guard in sight. There is not a commercial advert on site. There is just people and, you know, at that moment, their divinity. And it is, I find it really profoundly moving. And it's prefaced, I should say, 
by one of the best moments in our World Cup trophy presentation, which is um, the uh, the World Cup is given to, I think it's uh, President Zedillo of Mexico, who hands it over to Maradona. He kisses it. He's about to descend the stairs. And suddenly a balding gentleman in a very ill-fitting, loud Czech jacket, one set blatter, then general secretary of FIFA, looking a bit sweaty and worried, runs up into the middle of the presentation, grabs Maradona because they've forgotten to give out the medals. And he has to be dragged back. Then he gets the medals. And then he's allowed onto the pitch. You can't reverse a pitch invasion. Not even Sepp Blatter <laughs> can do that. Um, yeah, this is absolutely perfect. Um, so let's move from the people who are supposed to be on the periphery of the game, but sometimes aren't, to the people who occupy the very periphery of a football pitch and and uh, seem to have attracted your affection. I do love to watch the ball boys, ball girls, ball kids. I'm not sure what the official terminology is these days. It's um you know when I kind of sometimes think about going to football the way people used to think about Saturday morning cinema, you know you've got the main feature of course but you know you've got the newsreel you've got the cartoon funnies you've got the B movie you know you've got your mates in the back row and that's kind of what you're going for as well so often when I'm kind of at a game I'm enjoying all of the little cartoons and the newsreels alongside the main feature. I also really love assistant coaches versus the fourth official. Mm. You know, a 90-minute niggle is a great, <laughs> particularly at Rovers where you're behind the um, the dugouts and you actually can't see that much of the pitch, but you've got a fantastic view of the technical area. And yeah, the ball boys, the ball girls, the ball kids are one of my little... Yeah, newsreel, five-minute cartoons that I enjoy. And again, this season, there was an absolute classic of the genre on an unbelievably cold, wet night in March, uh, Tuesday evenings, and I think we were playing uh, Barrow. Um, my, what a journey they, <laughs> they had. Um, and it's particularly cruel at Rovers because the, uh, the away um, terrace has no roof. Right. It's the only part of the stadium with no roof, and there is when it's raining. Anyway, this this kid is the most... I mean, he's completely soaked. He looks like a drowned rat, and he's, he's basically not interested. He's had enough already before <laughs> the game has begun. There were quite a few occasions where he simply refused to get off his stool and go and get the ball. And it wasn't <laughs> like this was a sort of time-wasting exercise or some sort of instructions. It's just like... He'd had enough. He was sort of buried deep inside to what my, to my mind was a very <laughs> thin cagoule. Certainly not enough to be dealing with the rain. And oh, I've, I mean, I both felt for him and I was, you know, slightly irritated at the same time. But it was magnificent. And he didn't give up for 90 minutes. No one, you know, there was no sense of shame, no pressure. It was like, just, I've had it. I'm <laughs> not, I'm not doing this again. <laughs> Do you know, I I expected um, your first anecdote here to be about um, a ball boy or girl sort of being rather mischievous with the ball, and I suspect we'll get onto that. But almost regardless of the sympathetic story that, that David's painted here, Charlie, if you think of the profession, if we can call it, the vocation, the vocation. of ball ball boying um, as a whole, I, I'm I'm in, I'm not inclined to call it outdated. 
I'm, I'm just thinking it's a weird thing that we still have them. Don't you think it's... A, shouldn't we be contracting these things out to G4S or something like that? Shouldn't <laughs> we have, like, actual trained professionals to do this? There is something quite quaint about it because you're right. It is... Like, I remember first going to football and noticing them and... Um, and yeah, the fact that it is still, you know, it's such an elite product, especially in the Premier League. And you've still often got these teenagers just sort of hurling balls back to the keeper in a fairly casual, haphazard way. Um, but no, I'm all for that. I think I think that needs to remain. I think we need those uh, those slightly offbeat elements. Otherwise, it does become all too polished. I mean, you're obviously talking from a position of relative authority, Charlie, because you trained as a Wimbledon ball boy. Is this right? That is correct. That was for a feature, yes, to, to to understand how difficult it is. And it is so difficult. And it's it's run with military precision. Different vibe at Wimbledon, though. I mean, they're knowledgeable ball boys for a start, right? Yeah, that is a very different vibe. It, it, what I was saying about the sort of casual feel often at football games, it's, yeah, obviously none of that at Wimbledon. I mean, I'd be curious to know how, how rigorous uh, the training is for Premier League I, ball boys. Because it seems very quite fair approach, I would mm. say. But, um, but yeah, so... So, you know, we've damned the profession as a whole now, David. But I have to say, and, and this may sound a little mean, but I really hate it when ball boys indulge in sort of, sort of low-level dark arts to the delight of the home crowd, just to, you know, just to, just to get some applause from, from 30,000 people. Grow up. Pathetic. <laughs> oh, I applaud their chutzpah for mm. doing so. I think you've got to have quite a lot of nerve in front of 30, 40, 50,000 people, even if they're kind of your own folks to uh, to be doing that. And I can't help but love those little sneaky edges yeah. that teams are always trying to find of one kind or another. There is, you know... Again, it's a it's a slightly pantomime element, you know. I mean, but I love that. You've got to have some little, you know, you can't all have big villains. You've got to have some little villains yeah. and accomplices as part of the story. So I I really, I really like that. Um, but the sheer arrogance of some of these sort of 12, 13-year-olds, but I guess emboldened by the fact that they're presumably quite good <laughs> football players in their own right, as, as tradition attests. But... Um, David, if this trend continues of sort of slightly, slightly under the radar niggliness from ball boys and ball girls, are we? How far away are we from the first ever revenge tackle from a thirty-five-year-old veteran on a nineteen-year-old former ball boy who once mugged them off in the last minute of a one-nil defeat on Sky Sports? It's a man. The sad truth is that it is not inconceivable. <laughs> what a backstory that would be for a bit of beef. <laughs> Has, has anyone tracked down, because there's the Eden Hazard one, wasn't there, in a game at Swansea? Yeah. That was sort of where this, you know, was brought into the mainstream. Like, I can imagine those two being reunited or, you know, some, well, the, some sort mean, of mea culpa from one or both. Well, there's a very cynical backstory to that one. First of all, he was like 16, which is too mm. old to be a ball boy. And it turns out he was the son of the chairman of Swansea. Yeah, that was, it was quite funny, that one, wasn't it? Because all the simple, it, it, it classically, there was the sort of backlash and then the, it's the dial slightly <laughs> yeah. moved. And actually, suddenly it was like, actually, Hazard maybe had a point here yeah. <laughs> tackling this ball boy. Hazard came out in credit, I think. How come 16's too old, Adam? What's uh, the, where, where, where are we drawing the line here on what ground? 
<laughs> actually, no, this is a fair question. I mean, I are my we... days over? I mean, I guess it's <laughs> no, like... No, 100%. Yeah, I'm sorry, yes. I think, I think when you could feasibly be playing as a 16-year-old could be. I mean, yes, they'd be very young, but I think at that point, it, it feels a bit odd. Yeah, it's, it's a combination of, of age and sort of dimension. Like, you, you could be too tall to be a ball boy as well. It just it looks weird. You, you, you should look like a minion sort of on... on you know, or next to no money, sort of running around picking up balls for for the grown ups. That's that's the impression I I feel like it, we should maintain. But I don't know. I mean, maybe we should have ball boys in their late fifties. I don't know. Maybe <laughs> sort of thing that could happen. I, I have, mean, have you still got it? <laughs> I'm ready to get. I'm ready to go into training. Actually, for that, I'm ready to go into training. Fine, fine. Uh, look forward to that. I mean, I mean, potential for your your next book. Uh, um, the the brief history of of ball the seat the seat or the secret life of the ball boy yeah hmm. yeah globally yeah <laughs> look forward to that um so uh, your next your next love of football is more of a linguistic twist um, which is always delightful uh, tell us about these so my take on english football broadly speaking is that a lot of the time it is it's the long goodbye to industrial working class england you know um for a world that has disappeared, but somehow football is absolutely soaked in its iconography and its imagery. And and the one the thing that does that for me the most is when we talk about players' wages mm. and the weekly wage. <laughs> and I just think you must be joking. You know, players are wages are things you get two ten bulb notes in a brown envelope at the end of the week. You know, in black and white. You know, these these players are earning salaries if they're not earning some sort of weird, you know, non-tax deductible offshore loan scheme. But they sure as hell aren't earning wages. So that kind of sense of um, football is still something akin to the factory floor of the 1950s. I love I love that. And that, you know, is redoubled by the use of the word the gaffer, you know, and particularly, of course, by... Um, players from overseas in whatever mm. accent they bring, uh, talking about the gaffer. And, you know, most folks, I don't even know if people really know what a gaffer was, but certainly when I was growing up, the gaffer is the main man on the building site or on the shop floor. He's not the full shop steward. He's not the actual boss, but he's the guy who says what's what in your bit of the factory. He's the lead chippy on the building site. And I just love the idea of Arsene Wenger. You know, Arsene Wenger is the chippy on a building site, you know, on the Holloway Road, having a full English breakfast in about 1974. And then the one that does it in a way, maybe actually the most for me, is when people uh, talk about the Brains Trust. Mm. And you've got three players poised over a over a free kick outside the box somewhere. Oh, right. So this is the context you mean it in. Okay, I was, wasn't sure where we most commonly yeah, use I it. Yeah, I thought it might be transfer committee type thing. Ah, interesting. Now, I always associate it with the... Uh, with the huddle around the free kick and the Brains Trust that are deciding who's going to take it. And, I mean... The Brains Trust, I don't know if you know, but it was a radio program between 1941 and 1950 before it went on television. And it was um, literally the most popular radio program 
through the Second World War and the uh, late 1940s. And they're getting like 5,000 letters a week with moral dilemmas and practical questions for Julian Huxley and Cyril Joad, the philosopher. I mean, a world where people are called Cyril Joad. No <laughs> one's called that anymore. And um, yeah, it's that world of, you know, men in tweed smoking pipes on television and wirelesses in kind of wooden cabinets. And it evokes that lost, you know, England that still, yeah, when football actually was just unbelievably popular. So the sort of warp and weft of everyday life. So I love it that that little nugget is still in there long after the vast majority of folks have no idea what the Brains Trust was first time around. Okay, mm -hmm. so of those three kind of semi-consciously evocative terms, let's start with gaffer. And the, we'll, we'll present it in the only way that the Clichés podcast knows, which is to um, produce a montage of people repeating it over and over again to the point where it loses all meaning. They didn't show him respect when they called him by his name, Mikel. Don't you like that, Roy? No, no, he's <laughs> the manager, the boss of the gaffer. That's respect. I think um, when, when the gaffer come in, it was something... He said quite early on, whenever I dropped deep, that, that the wingers have to, to run in behind. Um, do you know what? I think the gaffer's just battered me in there, but... You know, the, the plan that the gaffer's got ahead of uh, the season is an exciting one for me, and I think I'm going to fit in well. Who leads these sessions? Um, majority of the time is between, uh, I think, the gaffer... Um, so before kick-off, the gaffer was like, oh, we can um, push into the first half of the, of the table. Yeah, two and two. Uh, prolific now, so... I think the gaffer has been asking for 10, so I've only got eight more to go in the next four games. And, and that was the gaffer, plays right now with me. I think the gaffer and all the boys have got to take a lot of credit with... Uh... Also, that, uh, that gaffer is bring, bring us so much details that <laughs> we know what, uh, what exactly have to do. Uh, gaffer's a winner, it was, it was the same as a player. Um... Obviously, the gaffer knows what he wants. But John Gregory is a gaffer. Yeah. That was my experience. You know, I, I heard the expression for the first time, I was like, what does that mean? Gaffer, gaffer. And you can't just say to him, he's a manager, or sometimes they say boss, but he's a gaffer. He, that's, when I think of a gaffer, it's John Gregory. Right. That's that, very cliche from Hitzelsberger. <laughs> As always, a montage that goes on about 50% longer than it needed to. But Charlie, so many questions spilling out of this one straight away. Let's, um, let's deal with this one first. A lot of the context in which we hear the word gaffer is usually post-match interviews with players who are kind of breezily referring to something they would have spoken about with the manager before or in training or whatever. So what's the, what's the kind of standard way? I, I do like the kind of, yeah, the gaffers come in. They always yeah. come in, don't they? they they've come in. And he's, uh, yeah, he's, uh, yeah. O often it's, about, nah, nah, listen, the gaffer said to me, so it's, it's often that, you know, the t conversations they've had with the gaffer, ah, listen, the gaffer's just said to me, get get in the box and, and you'll yeah. score goals. You know, it's that, <laughs> it, it's this, this little kind of pep talk they're getting from the gaffer. But the, the secondary one from that, David, uh, so primary usage of gaffer is something the gaffer said to them. And then the yeah. secondary one is referring back to the gaffer's playing career because sort of backstories mm. and playing careers are, are inherent to being a gaffer because it because it gives you that sort of extra level of authority. Well, because you've like, been on the shop floor. Yeah. Because you've mm. worked on the lathe. 
you've been on the production line. These days, you're running the production line and telling everybody else how to do it. I mean, yeah. it's an exact replica <laughs> of the kind of division of labor and system of authority that you would have found in working class like employment in the 50s and 60s. And that's absolutely... The other... Sometimes you also hear it used in... Uh, in the sense of setting the tone uh, of uh, of the work environment, which again is what mm. a gaffer, you know, your actual gaffer would have done. It's like the gaffer came in and said to the team as a whole, or it. Or I have, I think, you know, occasionally when you really hit the bingo card, you'll get, you know, the gaffer will have set out his stall mm. to everybody out to the to the to the team, possibly even read the riot act on yes. occasion in no um, uncertain terms. In no, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I always like it when players sort of, um, uh, Charlie, sort of underplay what the manager said at halftime. Yeah, the gaffer said a few things. Um, yeah. Know, a frank exchange of views is about as, as as revealing as it gets. But yeah, it's a few teacups. Uh, the, the relative of that is, listen, the gaffer didn't have to say a lot. You know, we know as players. Um, which is... <laughs> this is a new voice from you. This is good. This is a good new pretend I don't know where it's come voice. from. Ah, it's really well developed. But um, but. You know, we've established, David, that we've established, David, that it's it's an incredible resilience for a phrase to survive that long and and cross industries as well. But within that clip itself, we're hearing eighteen-year-old Aston Villa midfielders. We're hearing twenty-nine-year-old Korean forwards from Tottenham Hotspur. This is a very universal concept. I love the fact that they all latch onto it, and I realise it's a kind of almost a semi-official thing at football clubs. You have to address the manager as something, but it's great that that's become a fairly dominant term. It's pretty much universal. I don't think there's any football player um, that won't be using it at some point in their career. Coach doesn't sound right. Manager doesn't sound right. You know, in parts of Europe, you know, which had a history of uh, of British coaches, people are still saying the mister. Yeah, as, I was say, uh, mister. Which is kind of uh, an equivalent from a slightly different sort of uh, context. And it makes sense. What else? You know, it wouldn't. It would feel really strange for them to be saying the coach, the boss. Okay, the but the boss has a kind of a sort of separation. The gaffer is, you know, yeah, he's in charge, but he's yeah. also one of us. Yeah. In a way that the mm. boss is not one of us, and I think that's why it's so appealing. I think that's why it's so appealing to players. I think tellingly with with Mister. Charlie. Um, one of the clips I stumbled across was an interview with David De Gea on BT Sport within the last couple of years. He was being interviewed in Spanish and he said Mr, but BT Sport subtitled it as Gaffer. So, I mean, <laughs> I mean it was already, the, the parallel's already there, but that's it. That's confirmation for me. We now establish that as, as what it means, which is great. And then by extension of all of this, the, the, perhaps the crowning moment for Gaffer for me, for how much it, it stuck through history and stuck with individual players was Ian Wright addressing Glenn Hoddle as gaffer throughout ITV's coverage of the Euros last summer, which was just perfect. <laughs> he simply conditioned not to call him anything else. How perfect is that? That's lasted. I mean, also, gaffer should uh, gaffer would save us when we're right, as, as we found out the other day, this division of manager and head coach. It really annoys me now. Whenever I write manager, I have to double check. Is he, is he definitely the manager or is he the head coach? If we could just do gaffer... 
That would save us a lot of hassle. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, we can't start using gaffer <laughs> at first mention on The Athletic. <laughs> we can't have that. I refuse. And, and also, there'll be some listening to this. Gaffer as well had another lease of life on the very popular show Line of Duty because that's what uh, DCI Hastings is is called by his team, tying in, Dave, to what you're saying about this sort of rich heritage of gaffer. I mean, obviously, they, uh, they are police. Let's talk about wages then, David, uh, because I, I feel like we're, we're stuck with wages as a concept, regardless of how footballers are actually paid. I mean, by, by, by all accounts, they are paid monthly, just like the rest of us or most of us. But, but this idea of wages is stuck with us because wages is used as a kind of weapon to attack footballers traditionally. But what I'm trying to establish is what's, where, are, where are we at with the kind of moral inflation of approximate top-level footballers' wages? It used to be 30 grand a week. That used to be the thing we used to whip them with. What numbers are we talking now? Hundred? What's the what's the official figure that people who don't really like football should be whipping footballers with? <laughs> it becomes eye watering. <laughs> yeah, what's eye watering? <laughs> My take on this is that I don't think it is eye watering. I look at the top the top footballers. You know, just your average Premier League footballer. You know, you're earning that kind of eye watering money for probably somewhere between six or seven years of your career you know, with it tailing before, you know, before and after. And after tax and expenses and everything, I reckon over a lifetime, you're earning about the same as a serious, a, uh, a commercial lawyer or a partner at um, KPMG. Or, and I kind of think, oh, so that's not eye-watering. It's okay for those dudes to be earning that kind of money, helping multinational corporations not pay tax and rich people <laughs> hide their money. Mm-hmm. But people who are giving joy, pleasure and the whole panoply of, uh, of emotional content that footballers do, somehow they don't or they're undeserving. My take on it is like, like all rich people, they should all pay a lot of tax, you know, but why shouldn't they earn that kind of money compared to what people in the city or commercial lawyers are earning, or frankly, a lot of kind of high-end columnists in major newspapers. So, <laughs> I'm, 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 you know. So I, I just think there's a lot of uh, economically illiterate moral outrage going on around there. That said, eye-watering is definitely fifty grand. Once you're up to fifty grand a week, then you're in like two point five million a year, aren't you? I mean, the annual salaries mean nothing to me. Charlie, I, I, know. I, can't, I can't, my brain can't comprehend a, an annual salary for a footballer. I, I, I immediately have to try and sort of divide it by 52. I know, yeah, when you it see it, it just, it just doesn't feel right. It feels like something from outside of football yep. to have been infiltrated. It's on some Forbes rich list. You're just like, whoa, whoa, what are you doing? <laughs> exactly right. Hi, I'm Danny Kelly. You can join me, Jack Pitt-Brook, and the rest of the Athletics' frankly tremendous team of Tottenham writers twice a week throughout the new season for the View from the Lane podcast. It's the podcast that gives you everything you need to know about Spurs, as well as all the joy and pain of actually following them. Search for the View from the Lane everywhere you get your podcasts and listen ad-free on The Athletics. to your ears by The Athletic. This is Football Clichés. Oh, I, sent, I sent you're hotting up here, David. You're getting into your groove. Um, but the real test lies here. Tell us about your hatreds 
of football, if we can call them that. Tell us about your first one. I mean, hatred is probably a little strong, but, sure. you know, we're certainly in the realm of loathing. And that is the modern football. <laughs> the realm of loathing. That's the title for your next book. <laughs> in and around loathing. <laughs> the, uh, the modern football mascot. Mm. You know, which is basically a, a, a disnified foam foam suit. And my number one problem with it is, like, if you go back I don't know, to the beginning 1990s, roughly the average age of a Division One uh, crowd is like 25 to 30, with a lot of under 14s and a lot of unaccompanied teenagers. And these days, the average age of a Premier League crowd is like 50. 51 and it's so we're getting older and older and older and we're being offered this kind of infantilizing pathetic (laughs) childish spectacle i mean who likes mascots these people are not professional clowns they're not funny you know they have no interesting routines you know there's no visual comedy the actual aesthetics is just I mean, it's just absolutely terrible. It's wincingly bad. And what what's the one great thing about mascots, and again, this is happening less and less, is they are a classic case of um, those moments where the commentator is saying, nobody wants to see this, when, of course, actually, it's exactly what everybody wants to see more than anything. And that is mascots behaving badly. Mm. I mean, (laughs) is there anything funnier, you know, to my mind at football than a mascot behaving badly? You know, low-level needling of substitutes warming up, um, low-level hassling of the opposing uh, bench assistant coach. And then, you know, the real classics, you know, Wolfie from Wolves picking a drunken fight with the three little pigs at Bristol City. Yes. <laughs> Cyril the Swan, who had a very difficult period in the 1990s at Swansea, um, you know, where he got a two-match ban for a, a one-bird pitch invasion when Swansea scored an equaliser in an early round of the FA Cup. And then he finally met his doom when he tore the head off Zampa the Lion, his equivalent <laughs> at Millwall, and then drop-kicked the head into the crowd. I mean, I'd pay good... It's like a I'm, Greek legend or something. I'm you... paying good, good money for that. It's the disnification of it. I mean, back in the day, you know, there were alternative kinds of mascots. I mean, Manchester United had a goat for uh, for a period, which was a sort of slightly military thing. Regiments would often have animals as their mascots. So a live, a live goat, not a pretend Oh, absolutely. Goat. Mind you, you know, I mean, a stuffed goat on wheels could work, you mm. know. Um... <laughs> And then you had uh, Hoppy Thorne, who was um, a veteran of the First World War, who uh, tragically lost the leg, had a prosthetic leg, and would perform at the beginning of Man United's games in the 1920s and early 1930s by theatrically removing his prosthetic leg and then hopping his way round the centre circle. Bloody hell. So there are options. And that's better, is it? (laughs) You know, I mean... I think actually over Garnosaurus, yeah, I'm actually with Hoppy every time. But there is as well the, the Harry Hornet versus Wilf Zaha saga, and I and I that is a that was one of my favourite things ever. That so that that became this massive thing, and Roy Hodgson gave this amazing quote on it, which was, 
If you're asking me whether Harry the Hornet, who I presume is the mascot, should dive in that way, I think it's disgraceful. Mm. Which felt, you know, to describe a mascot's behaviour as as disgraceful. Just and also be saying, saying, I presume saying is the their mascot. names out loud. Just like managers of, of that stature shouldn't be saying mascots' names out loud. That should be the the dividing line. But if we if we can place them in the in the footballing landscape, Charlie, I, I'm trying to think of anything so embedded in British football culture, but that which nobody would really miss if it suddenly disappeared. I can't think of anything that can compete with mascots in that regard. If they suddenly disappeared tomorrow, who would care? Or, you know, lament their absence. Yeah, it is a weird one as to sort of, and as David says, you know, who, who they're for. I mean, one other thing that they do add is occasionally you'll see those amazing pictures of uh, teams lined up in minute silences. <laughs> <laughs> there was one of the Arsenal team doing a, minute, a really sombre minute silence and then Gunnosaurus is next to them also with his head bowed. That which, is it. Now, That's now the that one thing that's funnier it. than beef between mascots. It's mascots yeah. having to having to assemble in serious matters, definitely. No question about that. Um, yeah, no, you yeah, feel like there was... We are verging on hatred there, David, definitely. So don't, you know, don't hide it. If that's what how you feel. <laughs> okay. That's absolutely fine. Um, but if we can move on to your your second, maybe we won't call this a hatred, but your second irritation of modern football. I think um, irritation. might get personal. Irritation is better. Um, I'm a great lover of football on the radio. And particularly, you know, when my kids were little, uh, there was a lot of life where you're kind of combining childcare and house stuff and the radio's on and that's keeping me in touch with what's going on. And it's one of, yeah, one of my great pleasures is a Saturday afternoon in the autumn or the winter and it's getting dark and you're listening to the mellifluous tones of John Murray and then it's sports report and it's like, that's the rhythm of life, that sort of background. I feel at home and safe. And like all is okay with the world. And for many years, you know, that would extend into the early evening with 606. And um, I was a big fan of Danny Baker in its sort of original, slightly wackier version. But I have also, you know, taken enormous pleasure from its more mainstream incarnation. I particularly liked it. David Mellon, no. Um, but um, when Ian Wright uh, was doing it, I think with Kelly Cates, that was that was great. Like, absolutely, just like I say, makes me feel okay with the world. And then in the last few years, you know, Savage and Sutton have got the gig. First of all, they had like one of the two shows and now that's all there is. And I simply can't listen anymore. I cannot, I actually have to turn it off. Robbie Savage's voice goes through me like a kind of rusty chainsaw through my head. (laughs) And Chris Sutton's sort of censorious, sententious self-importance, I just, I have to turn it off because I know I'm going to explode otherwise. And what I, you know, my, my main issue is that it's become, A, it's all about them, And I'm not interested in them. I'm interested in the dude who's, you know, illegally using their mobile phone, driving back from some terrible defeat by Newcastle, you know, for Newcastle in the rain and wants to have a rant or a cry. That's who I'm. I don't want to know what Savage has got to say or what Sutton's got to say. So it's all about them. And the whole tone has become so aggressive. It's like, who would call 606 anymore? 
knowing that they're going to get berated, belittled, undermined, hassled, all with that sort of hidden set of assumptions and tones that we've played professional football, who the hell are you? And it's like, I don't want to hear that on 606. So it's a really big gap in my life. I mean, I've spent like a lot of time in my life listening to 606, very happily just bubbling along in the background and got a lot of joy just from listening to the sort of ludicrous range of concern and complaint and allows one to sort of, you know, the sort of sociologist in me is kind of taking the temperature. You know, what are the what are the people think? And I just actually feel completely robbed. I feel like it's like, you know, my nice, comfortable, safe boozer has been, you know, occupied by two bullies and bores, <laughs> you know, who who can't shut up. And I don't want to hear them, and I want them off. <laughs> Charlie, oddly enough, I'm surprised we've waited 178 episodes on this podcast to talk about football phone-ins in any, any sort of depth. But, you know, I'm speaking with authority here. I did my dissertation on the democratic potential of and its realisation within the football phone-in. <laughs> <laughs> did <I> actually <laughs> wish I had a copy of it to hand sadly I don't but um, anyway 2-2 two, two, so uh, <laughs> for the dissertation um, but, but if we can address the democratic potential of it slightly in the past the glorious past that David paints for us here it was more of a kind of even-handed affair when and why did presenters become so overbearingly active in the conversation because it used to be kind of an act of gentle kind of provocateurship in the kind of Baker mm. era. Now it's become, are we just obsessed with ex-pro voices? I, I'm, I'm not necessarily doing these two down. I just think generally, are we obsessed with ex-pro voices over sort of professional presenters? I think there's that element, yeah. And I think we're also obsessed with conflict and, you know, when, when things are clipped up, you know, and it's not, you know, not so much 606, but generally, you know, that's the things that get clipped up is, you know, listen to this Liverpool fan kind of ranting about this and then being put in his place or something like that. So I don't know if it's deemed to be more interesting if you've got that constant back and forth yeah. rather than fans monologuing. Uh, have either of you two ever phoned in? I have not. Ah, uh, what a good question. <laughs> Do you know, I don't, I don't think I ever have. I don't think I ever have. Imagine no. that. Oh, we've got David Goldblatt on the line, actually. I'll <laughs> <laughs> be the entire episode. It'd be fine. <laughs> yes, I well. After the after this goes out, one wonders what reception I'll be getting at the six oh six switchboard. Well, I mean, you've, yeah, you've you've let it all out. That's fair to say. I mean, I don't know. I mean, the, the I, I feel like there's a still a remnant left of the kind of romantic kind of ideal of the football phone, in which is kind of that you can almost approximate it in your head, almost without hearing any of the words that anybody is saying. You can almost hear all the different tones. You can hear the car in the background. You can hear the slight echo of the radio that they haven't turned down. And that's even the tone of voice. There's basically two tones of voice. There's there's kind of remonstrating fan of team who've just lost and then sort of praise laying on fan who've just witnessed something great from a team they love and there's basically nothing in between it's just those are the two tones of voice you ever hear yeah you're not really calling in if you're sort of middle you know if you're feeling middle of the road are you i mean you're good that you're calling in because you have a strong view on whatever you've just seen yeah what what did you conclude adam in your dissertation um trying to remember i give me the abstract well i mean i did a lot of sort of statistical analysis of how many times presenters would interrupt people sort of halfway through their main point and then and on the basis of that, deciding, no, it actually isn't as democratic as it claims to be. 
there we go. Media studies. Wow, what really, a forerunner really... for cliches that is. <laughs> See, I mean, I can imagine that now, get, you know, getting an average, you know, how, how many the different presenters, how many seconds the different presenters I I do it to, to prove David's point. I'll have to dig out the mini discs to find out. But yeah, but, but fundamentally, David, there are only a select few characters that you hear on a football phone in. I think that we've narrowed the field. I mean, I think that was the genius of the original Danny Baker uh, version of it is that he was asking people to call in about oddities and unusual things and the experience of going to the game or stock characters that you meet, you know, in the stands, you know, or what people are wearing or what they're singing. You know, there was a bit more of that kind of grassroots sort of reportage uh, coming through. And that, and it's all still out there. It's not like people aren't, that all that stuff isn't happening. I think it's such a rich seam to be mined. And sure, I mean, there are some who want, who want the conflict and the anger uh, or the despair or the rage. I don't know, you know, 21st century Britain seems to me is like there's more than enough inarticulate, Ill or ill-informed rage around in, uh, in the political sphere, let alone in football. I would love to hear some other kind of voices being nourished. Yeah, fair enough. More 6 out of 10 sentiment from minibus driving, non-radio volume turning <laughs> down people um, from the golden era, please. Finally then, I'm, I'm quite surprised you chose this one. I didn't think it would offend anyone, personally. But um, tell us about your third and final hatred of football, please. My final hatred is the playing of Queen's We Are The Champions. <laughs> Um, let me preface that by saying, obviously, I absolutely loathe Queen, full stop. Right. There okay. isn't a single Queen song that I would give house room to. But it's such a bloody dirge. I knew you were going like, to say dirge. That's the only <laughs> word you're allowed to use. <laughs> Come on. I mean, we started this programme by talking about the kind of uncontrollable exuberance that you feel you know, when you win something or you make it to a playoff, that you want to run around in circles, not knowing what direction to go with. And the musical accompaniment to that is meant to be, we are the champions. It is like, what a profound and total disconnect. I mean, there are so many songs that would be better. I mean, at Bristol Rovers, you know, at the end of the season, surely we should have been playing Promised You a Miracle. But no, it's going to be Queen. And some, <laughs> I also have a real issue with it being played after cup finals. Like, nobody talks about being the champion of the FA Cup. <laughs> That's true. You're not the champion. You're not even the champion when you win the Champions League, because that's just how you get into the tournament. You're the cup winner. You're the winner, but you're not the champions unless it's a league. So that is, like, offending... <laughs> All of my syntactical and kind of grammatical neurons. It's like, come on, a bit more imagination. I mean, it's bad enough that I've heard hell's bells at the beginning of a football <laughs> game, like more times than I've had at dinners. But we are the champions, please. Enough. Oh, this, this is a shame. This is a shame. I mean, such cryptic lyrics as well. <laughs> we are the champions. We'll keep on fighting until the end. There's, there's, there's a sense of mystery and mystique there, surely. <laughs> but sure, the end has already happened. <laughs> That's what, true. what are you going to... What, you're talking about next season? Mm. Like, let's relish the moment. You've done the fighting. It's done already. Let's enjoy. 
we are the champions. Open brackets. We go again. Close brackets. That's <laughs> I was going to say it's, it's, it's basically we go again. Isn't it? <laughs> I mean, it is also technically we are the champions of the world. Is the line so mm. Club World Cup? Would it be legitimate to be used then? Yeah, that, that feels like the most sanitised possible environment in which it would be acceptable to play it. But uh, I'm interested in the kind of international flavour of We Are The Champions. Was Whilst the lyrics are fairly straightforward, David, whenever I see it being played in the aftermath of a, of a trophy win, I realise how, how well it hurdles language barriers, at least for the chorus. But I also find myself looking at, see, which of these South Americans slash Central Europeans know the verses because it's a little there's a lot of very clumsy mouthing going along no i don't think i don't think that's happening I and mean, if you want you know you want some songs that really the whole world can join in with i mean why not play hey jude that would be that would be my choice i mean to be honest that would be my choice for the national anthem right I've really i've really had enough of god save the queen this begs the inevitable question where do you stand on sweet caroline <laughs> oh god <laughs> I'm not a fan. Oh. I'm really, really not a fan of oh, Sweet. Dear. I mean, oh, it's just like, oh, it's so grim. I, I just find it so anodyne. I mean, it <laughs> sort of like makes me want to put, um, you know, a knitting needle through my skull. It's so, <laughs> so bland. And so, oh, just like musically like being swamped by golden syrup i mean <laughs> where's the kind of energy where's the edge you know i don't know i want you know at the end of a game you know in a celebratory mode i need something more explosive than, uh, <laughs> no, than sweet enough. caroline yeah no fair enough but yeah well that that brings us to the triumphant end of mesut harland dicks david do you feel do you feel like a load has been taken off your shoulders after this i mean you've you've experienced so much you've, you must have picked up so much emotional baggage from football has it finally been lifted oh i really hope it isn't lifted actually i mean this oh. is baggage i'm very happy to carry around with me no i rather feel like bristol rovers actually i feel like i've just been promoted no. didn't if you'd have asked me at christmas whether i was going to be heading up into the into the next league i'd have said absolutely no way and here we are miracles mm. can happen oh it's, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you thanks for sharing your your loves and hates with us oh, my pleasure thank you so much for having me thanks to you charlie you were specially requested by david goldblatt no less so i hope you feel honored by that i do i do hope i lived up to expectations yeah thank you, well, so much. you would have been here anyway but let's, let's yeah yeah <laughs> Such is such is the format of the podcast. But to play us out, here is indeed we are the champions, but not the Queen version. No, no, the Glenn Hoddle one. I've made
The Athletic.